Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Michael Welp, Ph.D., who is co-founder of White Men as Full Diversity Partners. Today we will discuss how marketplace discrimination equals a $64 billion loss. Michael is the author of Four Days to Change. In 1990, he journeyed to post-apartheid South Africa, where he took a proactive role with a nonprofit Outward Bound while leading team-building projects with, within a dozen South African corporations. For over two decades, Michael has worked extensively with Fortune 500 companies' leadership to build a culture where diversity flourishes and inclusion is the order of the day. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Elena. Great to be here. I think this is a topic that is particularly apropos in this time, November 2016. (laughs) Let's start with something really basic, if you would. What are we referring to when we say diversity? That's a great question. I'm glad you actually take the time to focus on that. You know, there's there's a... historical sort of focus of diversity, which is often examined as race and some gender or now even sexual orientation. You know, if you're in Europe, you might look at class more or country nationality. And these days, age is pretty significant. So there's there's a, a deep dive on any of those topics, but really uh, diversity is broad. Diversity is ultimately differences that make a difference. So what are the differences that make a difference? And if you and I are in the same organization, you know, race might feel like it makes a difference or culture for one of us and another of us, I might feel different because I'm an introvert. So what differences make a difference is a very broad definition of diversity. And I would say, you know, related to diversity is the concept of inclusion as well. So now that we know what the differences are, the mix that's in the room or in the organization, the way that I operationalize inclusion is, am I in or out? And do I have a voice, power, influence in decision-making? And am I appreciated for my skills and resources? And, you know, the way that all of us have to answer those questions is going to tie in and connect to, you know, do do my differences help make a difference? Am I seen and appreciated and am I included? So diversity and inclusion are core concepts. And if I understand correctly, diversity varies depending on the setting. It's not going to be the same definition of diversity everywhere. What might be diverse in one place might not be diverse somewhere else, whether we're talking about geography or corporate culture, et cetera. Is that right? Yes. I mean, I think you're naming, Elena, the complexity of the topic of diversity is it's context-specific. You know, diversity in the south of the U.S. and the southern southeast comports, you know, uh, may may feel like it's more about race or or culture. Uh, if you're around New Orleans, perhaps, and you know, when I was living in northern Minnesota, diversity was the Norwegians versus the Swedes versus the Finlanders. So it is different around the country. What about discrimination? How do we define discrimination for purposes of, for example, the topic we said we're going to talk about today, which is how workplace discrimination equals a $64 billion loss? What are we referring to there when we say discrimination? 
Well, discrimination and, you know, the, the, the questions that I raised around inclusion, those three questions, am I in or out? Do I have a voice and am I appreciated? You know, a lot of times if people aren't um, and the answer is no, then they're experiencing some form of discrimination or they're feeling excluded because of some difference. That figure, $64 billion, is actually what's been reported as the annual estimated cost of losing and replacing more than 2 million American workers who leave their jobs each year due to unfairness or discrimination. You know, if you think about an hourly worker, Somewhere it costs around five thousand, ten thousand dollars to replace that worker. It's about ten times that more for executives, and that's uh, according to research that's uh, by the Level Playing Field Institute and uh, has been researched by the Center for American Progress. So, you know, there's a lot more costs besides that. There's costs to train workers. There's costs um, just for educational and promotional of workers. And that's simply just pulling out one statistic, which is, you know, if we're taking all the people that leave their jobs in the U.S. due to unfairness and discrimination, what's the cost to replace those? That's just one way to put a hard figure on, on, on the lack of inclusion uh, can actually be costing us in today's world. If we take the devil's advocate perspective for one second, mm. there is the idea that diversity requires more effort, certainly on the part of the company, that it's not really necessary other than to be politically correct. What would you say to that? Um, I, you know, it's a good it's a good question. You know, I was, I, I think the, you know, does it really matter? Does diversity matter? And, you know, there's a lot of research out there that does say that diverse teams uh, sometimes are harder to have be performing because there's more complexity to them. You know, if you're working with people that are all basically the same, and if you go back to the workplace 50 years ago, most, a lot of white male workers, it wasn't even a gender mix. Um, they had a lot of similarities and, um, it was, it was, they didn't have to deal with some of the differences they have today. However, most of the research says that highly diverse teams also are the highest performing. So once you put the time in for people to learn to work together, you get more innovation, uh, you get more consistency, uh, of, of, uh, I guess the some of the some of the knowledge that I know of that in the last decades is you know that if you look at Japan, which is a pretty monolithic culture compared to the U.S., they can be better at executing. I mean, they can produce products cheaper, oh, historically, but America has always been the more creative, more diverse culture that has a lot more invention, a lot more innovation. Um, because of the diversity and the, the independent thought that people are raised to the culture values, individualism versus collectivism, and wants people to sort of be out there doing, doing, beating their own drum, and and that's that that so diversity, if you institutionalize it, can actually feed innovation, and that's that's beyond just political correctness. There's a business benefit to that. Despite the changes. In the country, despite the growth in the markets that has changed the makeup of our country, is that is that still true? Um, say that a little bit differently, Elena. You mean is is it what's is what's still true? 
if we look at, for example, the number of patents filed has plummeted in the last decade or so, and mm. we have a change in our demographic profile that is increasingly more diverse, but some people believe has less buying power, is the benefit of diversity in terms of creativity compared to other countries still an advantage in the United States? And also, for example, if we take into account the number of job loss, the jobs that have been lost in the last decade, which has been huge. Yeah, I, th I think there's... I, I think probably there's data that people are going to point to to prove whatever position they already have on a lot of different things. I mean, I, I think there's people who say, yeah, the jobs are going overseas, the buying power. The, I mean, there's there's a lot to say to people in the in the workforce who are middle class or working class, where their overall um, percentage of, of productivity and income is lowering compared to where uh, the upper class is. So there's a lot of complex factors going on, but I think also that um, there's so there's there's a there's the globalization so there's a lot of a lot of manufacturing that's moving overseas and even service and telecom uh, telemarketing services can be moving to India and other places and stuff and and at the same time I think uh, the the overall marketplace in the in the in the whole globalness is has really been increasing still and you know you have examples where when a company hasn't paid attention to diversity it's paid they paid a price you know back to the classic example of Chevy Nova when Chevy took their Nova down to uh, Central South America they couldn't figure out why it wouldn't sell and didn't even realize that Nova meant no go um, in the local languages um, and that is the cultural learning that either takes place or doesn't take place plays a big role and I clients I work with I still feel uh, I still see a huge amount of them working now with countries in the Middle East, countries all over Asia, and they are figuring out that if they don't understand the cultures internationally, then it's going to cost them. It's going to cost them dollars and cost them business. So uh, there's this respect and intriguedness around understanding diversity, both internationally as well as domestically, to you know maximize. Uh, employees and maximize customers who are more diverse than their traditional customers. And when you say Nova and the languages in Latin America, I assume you're speaking about Spanish and the words, the two words, Nova for no go. Right, right. Yep. And the other example I remember hearing for many years is the Gerber and um, they they were went into Africa to try to sell baby food and in Africa and the local cultures there you often have a picture of on the jar of what's in the jar and um, Gerber's historically always had a picture of a baby on their jar and um, that was nobody wanted to buy um, you know a picture a, a jar with a picture of a baby on it but they didn't understand that it wasn't a picture of what was in the jar so uh, those subtle little things can cost business. And then the argument is that if you have a diverse makeup in your organization, you would be aware of those issues and avoid those faux pas. Is that right? 
That helps. Yeah. I mean, it, it actually, it, but it actually would say that it takes more than that. It's not just simply having uh, a good number of Hispanic folks in your leadership or workforce or black or Asian folks, but it's actually also kind of about the work that uh, I've been doing the last 20 years, which is how do you engage the majority culture or in this case in the U.S. white men who are traditionally founded a lot of organizations in the U.S. to understand our blind spots and understand what we don't know we don't know about that. And traditionally the role to educate uh, the dominant group has fallen to minorities and women, and that's what we find is not a sustainable process. So it's, it's much more than getting uh, just simply numbers changed in your organization. It's about the awareness building and the partnership. What prompted you and your co-founder to start White Men as Full Diversity Partners? That's a great um, question. It's, it's, a, it's been a journey for me as a white male, and I was grew up in Iowa, and uh, I didn't learn a lot about diversity there. It was um, racially mostly white organ uh, systems and schools and college where I went, and and then um, I went to Outward Bound and learned how to facilitate dog sledding and cross country skiing and uh, canoeing expeditions in northern Minnesota, and I learned a lot about facilitation there. It wasn't until I moved to Washington D.C. and I was in a graduate program there that. Uh, was about organizational development, organizational change, and we had a very diverse group for two years of 27 of us that had a lot of powerful conversations about race and gender, and there I became more conscious of, I am a white male, I'm part of this group, and that has a different experience for me in the world than other people of color have and women have, and becoming more aware of that. Then I, as you mentioned earlier, I got excited about Nelson Mandela being freed from prison in South Africa, and I went over to uh, facilitate for a year uh, 10 Outward Bound courses there where mining groups, banks, pharmaceuticals from Johannesburg and around the country were learning how to work together across race, and I was taking them on eight-day expeditions to learn how to be together. And many of them, Elena, had never ate at the same table together, uh, never slept in the same dorms in the mines, or had never drank beer together, yet they worked on the same shifts together for years. And so now we had them blaying each other up rock climbs and learning how to trust each other and learning a lot more of how they were the same with hopes and fears. And at the end of that week, a lot of them found they were really brothers and sisters and they uh, learned to put the differences and the sameness in more perspective with each other. Some of the white folks there actually felt like they were betrayed by their government, thought thought things that weren't true by each other. And uh, that was a very powerful experience for me as a white guy growing up in the Midwest of U.S., uh, watching this change happen in South South Africa. And, you know, at first I thought, wow, these folks of color from the different tribal groups in, in, in black South Africa are really amazing. They would just spontaneously dance around the campfire and, and sing and do these skits, just spontaneity in their culture just was really alluring. But over time I really realized, you know what, these white guys that are on these courses with me, they're a lot like me. They are. Uh, they have a culture that sort of permeates and dominates the workforce, and uh, they have 
aspects of privilege and others are assimilating into their culture, their workforce, and they're not necessarily uh, conscious of that. And I realized there's a lot of guys, they're really good guys too, and yet they're part of this system that around the world is demonized for oppression and um, apartheid. And so I realized as I connected to the white men there in South Africa, I saw myself in in a, it's kind of a mirror for me and I realized I need to work with other white guys like myself in the US and I came back to the US which was uh, in the spring of 1991 um, Mandela had been released just that year before and I went over in September of 90 and um, I ended up doing a dissertation about how do white men learn about diversity? And I studied the learning journeys of eight white guys and uh, who do mostly diversity work. And I, I went to all their houses and interviewed them. And they were all over the U.S. One was up in Canada. And uh, I found that they learned almost everything from women and people of color. And they disconnected from other white guys. And they were kind of angry at other white guys. And that didn't feel sustainable for me. And some of the companies we've worked with over the years, like Shell Oil was one of our first big clients around 2000 and um, worked with them for three years. And um, they they said, we can't figure out how to get white men involved in our diversity efforts. You know, you go to any diversity conference, it's mostly women, people of color, and uh, we can't, white guys don't feel diversity is about them. And uh, we started in 1997, about 20 years ago, facilitating these four-day sessions for just groups of white guys. I said, what happens if we put white men in the room for four days? And instead of the typical focus of diversity, which is let's understand women and let's understand people of color, let's shift that around upside down and look at ourselves and say, what does it mean to be white for us? And what does it mean to be male and for many heterosexual? And what do we not know we don't know about how our world is different than others? And you know, if you look at the top of uh, organizations like Shell and others, it's it's 80, 70, 80 percent white male often. And that's not sustainable to have people of color. Women have to carry the burden to educate white men. So we started offering an alternative path for white men to really understand diversity. And that was to take them off, force us to learn from each other. And, you know, it's it's a very. Uh, unusual approach to diversity it has a lot of interesting parts around its journey. Uh, but that's how I started the process as Bill Proudman, my colleague and I both came from an outward bound background. We both came from a, so we, we created the process for white men to be very experiential. It's a group discussion for four days. It's really about understanding ourselves and it's quite life changing for most white men. Let's go back to the beginning of what you were telling us. For those of our listeners who are not familiar with the transformation that has taken place in South Africa, I know it seems like all the world knows about it, but it may not be top of mind. Would you give us a brief summary of what happened in South Africa during the apartheid era and how it's changed? Sure. I mean, I, I remember going over there in 1990 and working with uh, working with uh, 
a lot of black miners and some of their white foremen. And, uh, you know, I asked a black man, do you vote? He said, no, voting is for white people. And I remember being struck because I knew that intellectually. Actually, but um, just being, hearing him express that personally, that in apartheid, you know, first of all, it was, a, it was a philosophy that some people used religion to justify that said whites and blacks should be different, should be separated and not live together. And uh, not that unlike uh, how the U.S. has treated Native Americans, um, blacks were put on townships and limited to be growing and living in certain areas which were pretty poor economics in their resources and then whites were living in a lot nicer towns and things and so that, that existed for decades and decades over time the world became more in, intolerant of that and, uh, and instigated um, an embargo uh, against South Africa because of that and um, and then eventually uh, de Klerk as president in the 90s and late 80s was agreeing to dismantle apartheid and uh, free Nelson Mandela who had been in prison most of my adult life. I think he went to prison when I was like two, one or two. And, you know, when I went over there, I was, you know, close to 30 and um, realizing this man's been in jail most of my life, and now he's getting out. He's, you know, a few years later, he becomes president. So the uh, the freedom of everybody to have one person, one vote in South Africa was the main transformation, the dismantling of apartheid. And then they had to deal with, how do we forgive each other for this? How do we add the, they had a amazing worldwide model of truth and reconciliation let's let's get the truth told about all the things that happened apartheid and that desmond tutu chaired that for years and um i remember a lot of stories of him crying with the stories of what happened to uh not just blacks and people and what they call colors and indians and others but whites too and um so that was a healing process for them and then they created a what they call kind of a rainbow democracy, um, and, um, and and Nelson Mandela was the first you know majority black president over there, and um, so that was powerful um, example in the world of of um, changing from discrimination, legal discrimination against non-whites, to uh, more of a, a democracy where everybody has one vote. I mean, they still have a lot of problems. They still have massive economic challenges and unemployment and stuff, but they've been on quite a path. And, of course, because they also, in addition to the traditional race issues, that you've been discussing the divide during the apartheid years, they have the added issue of tribal differences. What is it? I think 13 tribes that they have, and they don't get along with each other, and they have feuds that have been going on for generations. So I imagine that must have complicated things even further, right? Yeah, I saw I saw a lot of that complication happening in the... Uh 90s when I was there, you know, and the Zulu tribes would be uh, violent with the other tribes. And um, I think it was uh, a lot of oppression against a lot of those groups. And they were desperate and really acting out um, with each other. I don't know if that's lowered a lot significantly um, with, with with the change in the government, but um, it's, you know, what I noticed and remember over there was, you know, in the U.S., we only have one or two dominant languages traditionally, and 
that's changing with Hmong cultures and stuff. And, you know, we have English and we have Spanish predominantly, but they had, I think there was um, six or so official languages in South Africa. And at the beginning of every week-long program, we had to find out who's in the room and what languages does everybody understand and try to find two languages and everything had to be translated through the whole week um, just for everybody to get a general sense of what was happening in our learning process. So that's a lot more complexity to deal with um, in, in South Africa with that. Uh, so, yeah, we don't just have tribal groups. have a lot of languaging differences as well. Which brings me to the, the distinction there being not just about race, but perhaps about ethnicity. And if you would talk about those two concepts for a moment, I think it would help us get our topic further along. You bet. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, that's, that's another element of the uh, diversity layers of diversity you can have race which is I, I ironically somewhat of a socially constructed concept and there's been studies that say there's more DNA difference within race than across race um, although a lot of the DNA research recently you can, you can take a DNA test and find out uh, what your what your actual DNA is what your race is from a DNA perspective um, but that no, it's, it isn't just about race. Um, it's also about culture and ethnicity, which for some people is about what their cultural background is, what their what their language is. You know, so you can you can. Um, I remember having a white man who uh, who looked white in a white man's caucus years ago, and he said he said in the middle of the caucus his mom was black, and um, and then other guys have been white but have been raised and adopted in a black household and vice versa. So you might be culturally, racially one color, but culturally been raised in another culture. That's a lot of layers of complexity. And that's more and more, it's not just a simple either or in today. You can't assume you know what people's culture or ethnicity is just because you're looking at what is a perceived skin color. And then Hispanic, you know, varies a lot in, in skin color. And so somebody might have some of the privileges of being white skinned, but might have an accent and might not feel white privilege from their voice. Well, that brings me to the next question, which is Hispanics since you bring up the topic of Hispanics, can be of any race because Hispanic is not a race, it's an ethnicity, it's a choice, it's a culture. How do you define white men? Is it a culture or is it a race? Yeah, well, that's an either-or question. And I, ask, I kind of ask men to self-define themselves. I ask men who are self-identified as white. And so we've had Hispanic men in the white men's caucus. Um, we've had men from South America who uh, feel like they're white men in South America. And then when they come, they might be slightly dark-skinned. Then they come to the U.S. and they feel like they're a man of color. They're not a white man or the society outside perceives them, you know, and they may be from Peru or something, and then the, they feel like they're seen as a person of color, even though they feel like they were raised and seen as a majority or a white man in, in, in Latin America and stuff. So there's, there's the inside out sort of self-perception of experience, and then there's the outside in, what others feel and perceive too. It's, it's a fascinating way of looking at complexity. How does that relate to what you were saying earlier in terms of the, the 
perspective that you take, you said that it's an unusual way of looking at the issue, white men as full diversity partners. How is it unusual? Tell us a little bit more about that, if you would. Sure. Well, you know, when you, when you, the, the normal way of focusing on diversity, what I call historical perspective of diversity is to examine and look at um, as you want to understand race more, is to examine people of color or have people of color be the teachers. Um, and same with gender. If we're going to understand gender, we need to explore women's issues. Um, we were going over to an oil company in Europe, and um, they wanted to break women through the glass ceiling, and they spent a whole year developing a state-of-the-art leadership program for women. And at the 11th hour, they paused and stopped and said, wait a minute, maybe there's not something we need to do with the men on how the men partner with the women. And they had us come over and have a conversation with them about that. But traditionally, you know, diversity is focused on as being about women, being about people of color, maybe also LGBT, uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. And... Um, if you think about who we put in charge of diversity in most organizations, it's usually a person of color or white woman. Um, we only know of maybe two or three chief diversity officers for most uh, Fortune 500 companies that are white men. Um, used to be Georgia Power and Coca-Cola, and they, they, those two guys could see their offices from each other's high-rises in Atlanta. Now I think there's a few others, and they, those two have retired, but it's overwhelmingly assumed that People of color, women need to lead on diversity, need to be the teachers of diversity. White guys don't know anything about diversity, and um, that kind of perpetuates the white guy typically sitting in the back of the diversity class saying, I don't know anything about this. I need to learn from all you. And thinking it's about helping those people with their issues and not really seeing how it relates to ourselves. So by adding another layer of let's examine being white, let's examine being male, and our, do we have a culture? There's a lot of white guys that think they don't have a culture, that think other people have cultures, but they're, they don't, or they're just vanilla, and they don't realize that this is the water they swim in 24-7. We've never had to leave the culture that we swim in, so it's like a fish that's like wet water. You know, and so the paradox is you got to leave your culture to understand it. And that that is uh, powerful insights to start to realize, oh, this isn't just about being human. I actually do have a culture. And then we can start to see what's it like for other people to try to uh, enter our culture in most of our workplaces that we've created those cultures and what they have to give up. For instance, a uh, Hispanic person might be more of a collectivist and feel a sense of teamwork and all the individualism that gets reinforced in a lot of American cultural business um, feels a little bit like a disconnect. How would you define this uh, our water, quote unquote, that you mentioned a second ago, this white men's water? Would you help us sure. paint a picture? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um, in my experiences of exploring it, you know, when I lived in D.C., I was really fascinated by international cultures, partly as a way to understand them, but understand my own culture. And uh, so I studied a lot of that and, you know, some examples of it. It's too complex to boil into six traits or so, but I can name some of the dominant threads of this. 
and it certainly varies around the country. But I would say, you know, one of them is this rugged individualism, this sense that I can make it on my own. Uh, we 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 historically came over from Europe because in in Europe and uh, England and other places you were told what religion you were, you were told what class you were, and you wanted to be able to quote unquote make a place for yourself. So you might have come over in the ships, knowing one in five of you died, taking a risk to be able to have that sense of rugged individualism to go out and make a place for yourself, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And that individuality, that individual freedom got embedded into our Constitution and Bill of Rights as a lot of the importance. We're one of the most individualistic countries or cultures in the world compared to, say, Japan. We might say the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Japan might say the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. More of a focus on collectivism and harmony over there. Um, we, we, we don't even want to admit when we're lost and ask for directions. Um, when, when we're lost, it's like that we don't not supposed to need help, you know. So the rugged individualism is one. There's another trait I think of is the low tolerance of uncertainty, that Calvinistic either or thinking. It's like you're either with us or against us, where we tend to want to uh, put things, see things in black and white, um, which actually is a trait that's great. Um, when when you are making missiles or making some really important product, you want to have a lot of uh, low tolerance of uncertainty. But but around diversity and humanness and communication skills, there's a lot of uncertainty and diversity um, is uh, a topic that we have to struggle in that low tolerance of uncertainty to really understand its complexity. Another one I would say, Elena, is the doing versus being, that action orientation. We feel like we get most value because we're acting and doing, uh, fixing and problem solving as opposed to reflecting or beingness. Other cultures, you have more permission to be. We're a doing culture, and that's what we feel brings value, which I uh, I want to say when I name these kind of cultural traits, I'm not saying they're bad because they actually have created a lot of success. We can overuse them, and they can become down uh, weaknesses if we overuse them, which is a one of the mindset shifts I teach is that uh, a strength of overused can be a weakness. So the doingness, uh, I would say another one is rationality over emotion, um, that that uh, because of that low tolerance of uncertainty, either or thinking, we, we assume that uh, you can't be either rational and emotional at the same time, which is other cultures uh, give plenty of room for that. But in what I experience as U.S. white male culture, it's assumed you can either be rational or emotional. And since credibility comes from rationality, you better not be too emotional. You better maybe a little anger, but not any fear or sadness. And um, check that and show no chinks in the armor. Um, really, really, um, you know, you're seen as weak if you show too much emotion. And um, so just stay in a calm, rational place or a little bit of anger. Um, and then there's two more I would just mention, which is time is linear and future focused. Uh, so we, we are time controls a lot of when we start and stop everything. We're very future focused versus other cultures can be past focused. Some can be present focused. And, um, and then uh, status and rank over connection. We have a lot more bantering amongst the men as a way to connect in other cultures. Uh, women, for instance, have more permission to be vulnerable and just connect deeper. That's a, that's a sort of quick run through of some of those threads. 12 Radical Habits to Overcome Bias and Thrive in a Diverse World. Four Days to Change. That's the title of your book. What do you mean by that? Would you help us understand? 
Yeah, I well the four days to change, you know, what I what what I did was after having facilitated twenty years of these four day sessions for white men that we call the White Men's Caucus on eliminating sexism and racism and homophobia and organizations and watching these guys go through a four-day journey where they go from seeing themselves as individuals to also seeing themselves as white men to seeing and discovering they have a culture to claiming the goodness and the strength of that culture and realizing there's also weaknesses if they overuse it and realizing how they have a different experience in the world than women, people of color, and to start to understand the blind spots that we have and how to partner better with women, people of color, and others, and change how we relate to each other uh, as well. Um, I wanted to spread that learning beyond the men that I've had the fortune of being in the room with uh, over, you know, 140 caucuses over 20 years. So I wrote this book and I called it Four Days to Change because it's fascinating to watch the change that happens in these white male executives and leaders um, over the four days. And um, they get more authentic and vulnerable with each other and able to say, I don't know, sometimes they need to ask for help to get more permission to be not just in their heads, but in their hearts as well to um, to be able to um, start to tolerate the messiness and complexity of diversity. And um, the book is just simply uh, captures stories from, true stories from 20 years of those white male dialogues and puts them into one narrative, one caucus with four white guys and my co-founder and I. So it's just a dialogue in this book about the true stories from four years woven into one caucus. And those 12 radical habits are some of the main shifts that happens to the men over those times. There are shifts in their mindsets that happen that are transforming for them. Is the book meant for a white men audience, or is it the kind of transformation that is relevant to anyone? It's a good question. It's both, in my opinion. Um, you know, I wanted to be able to have a lot of white men who aren't in the room be able to access the learning and the insights from those men. So it's certainly for white men who um, aren't able to come to the caucus, and some of them like to read it afterwards that are in the caucus as another reinforcement. But it's also we've been asked for years to be uh, to let people of color, women, be a fly on the wall. And I said, I would really love to be a fly on the wall and hear what this white male dialogue is about and what what can I please get in the head of a white male and understand you all better so that we can partner better. Because this isn't just about helping white men change our mindsets to be able to partner better. It is often women, people of color, other groups that often need to reexamine their assumptions about white men and so it's a great way for uh, anybody else, non-white males, to be able to understand white men and probably re-examine their own assumptions that get in their way of partnership. Um, I remember a, a woman who brought uh, her white male boss to a workshop, came up to one of us and said, uh, my boss is here, he's a white guy, and he I'm so glad because he really needs this. <laughs> and then she came up mid-morning in the workshop and said, you know what, I'm really glad um, I'm here because I actually have a lot of learning to do too. And sometimes women, people of color, are so busy helping us get what we don't get. As white guys, they don't have time to look at their own learning process. 
and examining those assumptions that get in their way. So it's an opportunity for all of that, for anybody to have that reflection and that mirror and that process. Is the process specifically in relation to white men? The, the idea that comes to mind is that, as you mentioned, bias. Someone once told me that we're all biased in relation to one thing or another or oftentimes many things that we have built-in biases in our cultures. Are these diverse people, all of these different perspectives of diversity, be it gender or ethnicity or religion, sexual orientation, they all bring biases, and everyone who comes to the table brings a bias of sorts. Does the book serve as a point of reference for these biases, or is it only specifically vis-a-vis white men biases? So, um, yeah, I think I, I, you're correct in that um, a lot of the research in the last 10 years that's come out is about unconscious bias, unintentional bias, and that there's um, everybody has that. You know, research shows 70, 80% of whites in America have an unconscious bias against blacks. 50% of blacks have an unconscious bias against blacks. And that's, that's similar for other cultures as well. And, you know, if you have white-sounding resumes and black-sounding named resumes, you take the same resumes and you just simply change the names on them, change the name to a black-sounding name white, and send them to the top corporate corporations with the best reputations for diversity, this has been done over and over, the white-sounding names will get twice as many callbacks and um, as the black-sounding name resumes. Same thing happened in Sweden. Swedish-sounding names and Middle Eastern-sounding names get half as many callbacks as the Swedish-sounding names. Like, and same research around gender. If you if you have an offer for, uh, you know, you send in a resume or things to uh, graduate program professors, um, if the name is a man's name, they'll get offered more. Uh, he'll get rated higher and he'll get more pay offered than simply changing the name to a woman's name. And that's that's done not just by men, but that's also by women professors responding to that too. So all of us have that to do. All of us have that. I'd say the book focuses more on white men understanding our unconscious bias, but it, I mean, I have a whole chapter on unconscious bias and a lot of chapters that I've found um, the women and people of color really, yeah, they're having to look in the mirror too when they're exposed to that. We often have had uh, white men have had to look at years to understand diversity when it's only been talked about around people of color and women. And, and um, now it's an opportunity for people of color and women to, uh, to learn from diversity as we have when it's been focused on the other, focused on white men. I, I think there's plenty of insights um, out there in the world and in my book for, for all those folks. How do you deal with the argument that favoritism of someone because of their diversity is harmful to the corporation, that people should be hired because of their ability to improve the bottom line, certainly in a nonprofit, but to improve the goal, whatever the goal is, as opposed to just because they are fulfilling whatever blank diversity 
goals the company has, that hiring for diversity only is not advantageous. What would you respond to that? You bet. Well, I think that's true. It's a very simple somebody's trying to fix a problem if they think that the numbers are simply need to be adjusted and we need to hire more women, people of color, solely because of that. Um, and then you end up leaving white men feeling like they're left behind or they're not getting a promotion just simply because of the color of their skin and reverse discrimination feelings uh, resonate with a lot of white men, even though they're still... Uh, a lot of research that shows that we still have the benefit in many cases. Um, but it's it's another layer of that complexity. It's like, um, and say you do hire a, a person, a woman or a person of color who, who ends up not making it, and um, and then they've had to... They've had to deal with the dynamic in the workforce where others are making an assumption that they only got their job because of their, color, their person of color or a woman. And if they don't prove, if they don't, if they, if they wash out, um, then uh, it actually reflects on other people of color, women around them, too. And meanwhile, uh, there's white guys that wash out all the time. And, you know, Joe just didn't cut it. It doesn't reflect on on John or Frank or other guys. It's typically we're seen as individuals. So we need to see how this plays out differently for different people. And that's part of the subtlety of this, too. And it's we are um, we I talk about four paradoxes uh, in the caucus and in the book. And those help us see the complexity of this. We are individuals and we're part of these groups that give us a different experience of the world. And we can focus and understand our sameness, and we can focus on differences. And so the paradox that I invite people to do is to be colorblind and color conscious at the same time, which is a, a leadership skill for today, as opposed to, gosh, do you want me to see your color or do you not want me to see your color? So I don't want to just hire somebody simply because of their color. I want to see the humanness. I want to see their qualifications. And I want to be conscious of race in the organization or culture and how does it play out in terms of, again, those three questions, who's in or out, who has a voice, and who's appreciated and acknowledged for their skills and resources. And there may be a few people in the organization where age feels like a more dominant difference that makes a difference than race or introverted, extroverted feels like that. So I'm not going to stay stuck on race and make it all about race, but I'm going to not also collude and ignore. And if I say I just treat everybody the same, I don't see color, I don't see race, which is what you can hear a lot of white men say, sometimes white women too. Um, the intent is often equality. The impact of that is that others feel like they've got to fit in my box or fit in my culture and act like me. And if they do that, then I'll treat them the same. Um, and so there's an assimilation process going on, and I may not even know it because I've never had to step out of my cultural box. I just equate my culture as being a good human or being a good American. And so um, that there's, there's danger in looking at race and culture because you can stereotype. And I say there's a greater danger in not looking at that because then we're just pretending everybody's individuals assimilating into a dominant culture, which is white male-based. And I don't even know that's going on. I don't know that people are leaving other qualities of themselves at the door, not even bringing those into the workplace for our teams to benefit from. 
nor do I even realize that we're doing that too as white men. How do you deal when there's a conflict between cultures? Because clearly there are going to be places where the differences are so pronounced that there's going to be a conflict that you have to work around, whether it's sexual orientation, religion, and all of the different aspects that come into that, gender, or as you mentioned a couple of times, the difference between introverts and extroverts. Oftentimes, introverts are not welcome in the workplace because the majority of the population is extroverted. They see extroverts in an unfavorable light. But all of these diverse aspects have the potential for conflict when you get into an environment that, as you have described, is a white men environment. How do you deal with these points of conflict? How do you get around them? Yes. Well, we we actually... um I go back to the Chinese symbol for crisis, which means crisis and opportunity. And we we are we see ourselves as at White Men as full diversity partners as a leadership development uh, consulting firm that uses diversity as a messy, complex arena to grow critical leadership skills. And so, rather than how do we get rid of these problems as fast as possible, you know, so we don't have any more conflict? Uh, conflict and diverse is diversity go together. They're going to be inherently ongoing challenges and in, around any differences that we're trying to uh, include. And so we need to in- build our skills. And we talk about eight critical leadership skills that are core to uh, success in today's business world. And particularly as diversity partnerships with each other. Um, we do a lot of workshops, as I said, for white men, but we also do mixed race and gender workshops all the time. And it's an opportunity to grow those critical skills in the room when we have those kind of dialogues about the conflicts you're talking about. So courage, courage to not just be not be Rambo, but courage to be vulnerable, courage to speak your truth, courage to say, I don't know, I'm learning about what I don't know, I don't know. Um, we talk about the skill of listening, not to fix or debate, but listening to understand. We talk about the paradoxes. I mentioned those paradoxes and balancing those paradoxes as a new skill, tolerating ambiguity and turbulence, and also the skill of having difficult conversations. So how can I engage in a conversation that's often hard to start or sustain? And if I have just offended somebody and there's a lot of conflict, chances are, my intent and my impact are different. My intention was probably positive. My impact was probably not necessarily positive. And can I, rather than defend my good guy intent, can I shift to inquiry and say, how did I just impact you? What was the impact I just had on you? And tell me more. And what is going on in your world around that? So a lot of times we're trained to use advocacy in our white male cultural norm because we want to fix things as fast as possible. We need to slow down, reflect, use inquiry. And so I do in, in Elena in these time is, is slow people down and really hear each other and get to share how they're impacting each other. They often discover 
new perceptions they didn't know about, either from their about their own impact they're having or different awareness uh, around what it's like for other people to be themselves in the organization because we've over-assumed sameness and not recognizing the different waters that we're swimming in. So for me, conflict becomes an opportunity for partnership, becomes an opportunity to grow leadership skills that are needed to discuss things in today's business world, not just diversity, but business issues all, all over. So, it, you know, I've seen very powerful conversations in the U.S., happen around the tension for people around having strong religious beliefs and people who are GLBT or allies of gay, lesbian, bisexual folks really understanding um, what it's like for each of them, um, whether they feel like all of a sudden they can't have a Bible on their desk anymore or they feel like uh, they can't be safe to talk about what they did over the weekend because it might reveal a same sex. It's like, again, people want to be able to feel included in? Am I in or out? They want to feel like they have a voice and influence and they want to feel appreciated for their skills and resources. And all these differences play out in simply an opportunity to first understand each other and slow down and get how each other is impacted and start to understand how to partner better and use all those leadership skills. How would you suggest that someone address, just to use a concrete example, a situation where Mm. one person's habit or one person's enjoyment impinges on others. To illustrate, someone Mm -hmm. goes to the shared kitchen at a workplace and prepares or heats a meal that has very strong odors that other people find offensive and that makes it difficult for them to use the same space because it's so pungent. How do you deal with that situation? It's not just about perception. Now you're in a situation where you are affecting the ability of other people to use the same space because of what you're doing to that space. Wow, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I can feel my fix-it muscle come up as a white male. <laughs> but I think, I, I think again, um, starting to share... Um, I, I would share, I, I would, I, it's really about authentic dialogue, you know. So is there a, pers- a conversation that can happen between those parties, you know, when this, when you're cooking this, this is what I feel, this is what happens to me, I don't want to be around this, might be sh- about sharing impact, and I want to figure out a way to partner better with you because our partnership is important. So whenever you have a difficult conversation with someone, it's really important to start with a clear statement of intent. Um, My partnership with you is really important because I find that we have a lot of creativity in our work together, and I want to be able to work with you um, and and benefit the company and, and have that partnership feel good for both of us. And here I want to discuss a situation that happens in the lunchroom that's hard for me. And I actually feel a bit embarrassed to bring this up because I don't know how to solve it. And I'm having trouble with this, and this is what happens when I smell this or whatever. And um, have you ever heard that before? Um, I might actually try to learn more, too. I might learn about what is this person cooking what is the odor from? Um, have I ever actually tasted the food, too? Because that might be a whole different experience than some odor that I'm assuming about. So, again, using the situation that's a conflict for an opportunity to create partnership and understanding with each other. 
And maybe there's some things that I'm doing that are offending other people, too. And maybe I could ask for that, too, rather than just go at the problem that I'm having. Where can our listeners go to gain greater insights and learn more about this aspect of interacting in a productive environment in addition to your book, Four Days to Change, and and or can where can they find more information on the book and on the topic? Sure. You know, it's uh, there's there's a a wealth of resources out there around diversity and um depends on the topic area. Our our website for you can Google white men as full diversity partners or the acronym WMFDP.com is uh we have some videos on there that describe some of what I'm describing that can be uh, looked at or shared with others and some links to some articles that are helpful or blog. We regularly put out a blog as well um, that have on, on current topics in the organizations. Uh, and then, of course, the book Four Days to Change. There's a website, Four Days to Change, that's linked to the uh, book, and that's on Amazon as well, and it's available as well. Um, I also would recommend Catalyst. Catalyst.org is a partner organization of ours that is about increasing women's um, um, uh, in, in the corporate environment, and they do a lot of research. They've done a lot of research. Some of it we've collaborated with them around um, engaging men as diversity, uh, gender equity partners, and we do work around the globe with them. Um, going to Switzerland next week to uh, do a program for another company um, partnership with Catalyst, but Catalyst has a ton of research on their website that is related to all this. What tips or suggestions would you share with our listeners, Michael, that they can take back to their work, to their projects, and get started on some of this way of looking at diversity? Well, I can. I would share, Lana, some of the radical habits or the new mindsets that are outlined in my book. You know, there's it no longer works to see everything in life as a problem to solve. Life is a journey in which new problems arise and perspectives arise. So that's mindset number one, which is to shift from trying to fix everything because you can't fix what you don't understand. So see this as a long-term journey around understanding diversity. And then another mindset is really incorporate multiple perspectives, even when they're contradictory. Um, seeing everything from one perspective gives you an incomplete view. So how do others see the world that might feel uh, in a different perspective than mine that actually can add my perspective, give me a more complete value or vision of the world. I like to say that my view of the world isn't wrong. More likely it's incomplete. So how can I, I need others to have a different perspective so I can get a broader view. Uh, Mindset number three, I'd say your strengths overused become weaknesses. So notice when your strengths don't serve you. Maybe it's that rugged individualism or the assumptions of only being rational and not emotional um, or and I only get value from action, you know. So um, those are great skills, but don't overuse some of your strengths. Um, try to balance yourself. And that goes with what I'd say number four, which is to learn to accept ambiguity, emotion, and discomfort. Just be with the messiness around the topic of diversity and, and use inquiry to really understand other people instead of just being advocate for your own perspective. Try to get other people's worlds more. And that's a, that's a all, you know, we, we have so much 
messiness in our society right now uh, about, you know, people coming from different places. There's plenty of perspectives out there for us to start. It doesn't mean you agree with other person's perspective, but can you hear somebody's worldview that's totally different than yours and accept it as valid for them? That's a, if we all step into that direction, it's going to create more space for us to partner. Thank you, Michael, for joining us from Sandpoint, Idaho. Yeah, thank you, Elena. It was great to have a conversation with you. Appreciate it. Great questions. Thank you. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Michael Welp, Ph.D., who is co-founder of White Men as Full Diversity Partners and author of Four Days to Change, who discussed how workplace discrimination equals a $64 billion loss. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com. <laughs>